0: And in verse 5 there, Judas questioned, why was this fragrant oil not sold for three hundred denarii and given to the poor? Now here again we find Christ in the village of Bethany. And uh, we saw him there just a couple of weeks ago, and in fact... He was visiting Bethany just a few days before this. It is, of course, the village of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. And just a few days before this, he had, of course, changed that home completely from a house of mourning, where they were mourning their dead brother Lazarus. He changed it to a house of joy and gladness. He did so, of course, by raising Lazarus from the dead. The last a great miracle that our Lord performed, the seventh of the so-called seven signs throughout the Book of John, which signpost his identity as the Lord and the Saviour. Now uh, just a few days later the Passover is of course pretty much on them, and he visits the village of Bethany again. Now This is a village and, of course, a home that he has honoured so often with his presence throughout his ministry. It was his lodging place whenever he attended the festivals in Jerusalem. And just as he delighted to honour them, so they too delighted to honour him. And on this occasion, they hold a feast in his honour. The feast is not held in the home of Mary, Martha and Lazarus. It's held in the house of a man called Simon the leper. Obviously, he's not at this point a leper, uh, but he must have been a leper. He's been gloriously healed, but sometimes people's names just stick to them like that. Rahab seemed to be forever referred to as a Rahab the harlot, although she was marvel marvelously converted out of her life of prostitution to a life of service to the Lord. But I suppose with the name sticking like that, it's a reminder of of what a person was and what the Lord did for them. And similarly, Simon the leper reminds us that this man was once uh, cast off, cast aside and awaiting death, but the Lord had healed him. Perhaps the reason the feast is in this man's house is because maybe it's just the biggest house of all and they want as many people as possible to be able to press into it and to enjoy the Lord's company and to hear him open out the word of God. And it's a good thing to think that in a place like Bethany, there were several homes, I'm sure, that were willing to entertain the Lord and the Lord's people. And uh, may that always be true of our own homes as well, that these are homes that are always open to the Lord and to the Lord's people. So they're providing a feast in his honour. But even in the house of Simon the leper, it's interesting that the spotlight still falls on these three close friends of our Lord, Martha, Mary and Lazarus. The spotlight falls on them in different ways and to different degrees. Take first of all Lazarus himself. We're told that he sat at the table with them. Now, it's easy to forget just How miraculous a thing that was. I mean, this man is a walking, a sitting miracle here at the table. There's no doubt about that. Only days before he was dead. This is a man who was alive and was dead and now is alive again. And in fact, in John's account of this narrative, he tells us that many of the Jews came to this feast who who were not in Bethany with the expression, intention of just catching a sight of the man who famously was dead and is now alive again. So Lazarus is sitting alive and well at the table. And what a wonderful experience he has had, and what a wonderful testimony he is able to give. I was asked by more than one person, I mean I preached a couple of times in that passage, but uh, I never really dealt with the question of... um, What did Lazarus experience in the three to four day period in which uh, he was dead? The short answer to that is that we don't know. But I'm sure at the same time it's safe to assume that he was taken to be with the Lord. Um, We're told that Paul himself uh, was taken to the third heavens and he said whether I was in the body at the time or out of the body, he says, I cannot tell. In other words, he's quite open to the idea that he was seized up into glory in the body. There was nothing objectionable in the idea to Paul. And Paul tells us that he heard and saw things there that were uh, inutterable, inexpressible. Uh, But he took them with him. And uh, he he, he was able to open his eyes and to continue life in this world. Well, similarly with Lazarus, all we can say is that God showed him and told him, as much as God wanted to show and to tell but he certainly had a story to tell uh, when he was summoned out of the grave Martha too well, were told by John expressly that she served at the meal now that in itself is interesting in its own way um, you'll remember that we already saw If you read the Gospels, we already saw in the past Martha serving at another table in her own house. And you will remember how the Lord rebuked her for how she served, because she served in a very grumbling way, particularly discontent with her own sister, who wasn't, in her eyes, sharing the burden with her properly. So the Lord was certainly rebuking how she did it. But he was also rebuking the fact that she did it, or at least the fact that she continued doing it when the time for serving was well past. Uh, There's a time for everything. Um, There's a time to serve the Lord, and there's a time to be served by the Lord. Mary certainly recognised that when the Lord began to speak, that was the time to let the service go and to sit at his feet. Mary, Martha just uh, carried on serving, And was grumbling while she was doing so. Martha, Martha, he said. You are careful and troubled. You have a divided mind, he says. You're anxious about many things. But your sister Mary has chosen the one thing needful. That good portion which will never be taken away from her. The interesting thing is that next time we find, well not quite the next But on this last occasion that we see her, she's still serving at the table. All I want to highlight from that is that the rebuke doesn't put her off. You know, there are some people, and uh, if you do rebuke them, they'll say, right, I'm not doing that anymore. Uh, You do that yourself. If you're not happy with the way I'm doing it or whatever, you do it. And they opt out. Uh, They take away their service from the house of God. They take away maybe their presence from the house of God because a fault was found with something. Now, if we're in the right spirit, that's not how we take a rebuke. And I admit that sometimes rebukes are not given very well. Uh, But as someone once said, even if they're not, there's usually a bit of truth in them. Of course, it's a duty to give a rebuke in the right spirit if you intend somebody to take it no doubt that the Lord always rebuked in the right spirit. Martha certainly took it like that. She said what David said in the psalm, let the righteous smite me, it shall a kindness be show me my wrong show me where things are wrong in my life and before the Lord I will put it right. So she doesn't down tools, she just does the right thing in the right way that is how as Christians we should respond whenever anyone seeks to put us on the right path especially when they do so in a gracious spirit. So I think we can say that from that time forward, Martha served the Lord in the Lord, in the right spirit and in the right way. Now, um, that's Martha Martha and Lazarus, but the attention in the passage is drawn particularly to Mary, and we all know that. The spotlight really falls on her. She has her own purpose in view when she comes to the feast. Um, The other woman of whom we read in Luke chapter 7 she made a point of taking the alabaster box of perfume uh, to the feast in the Pharisees' house. Similarly Mary makes a point of carrying the alabaster flask of perfume to the feast in Simon the Leper's house. If it was her own house, you might think that she had just somehow spontaneously decided to do it. But the fact that the feast is in someone else's house tells us that it's premeditated. In fact, as the Lord highlights, she's been keeping this flask for some time, and this is the occasion on which she decides that she will do what her heart set on doing. Uh, So she knows in other words what she's going to do and she takes the most valuable thing in her house. It's a box of alabaster. Alabaster is a kind of expensive stone. It's a bit like marble except it's softer. It's easy to write or to engrave on. And This kind of alabaster box was used for a, an extremely expensive perfume, which was found in the Himalayas, in Tibet, in um, Nepal, parts of India. And it was a very pricey import into Israel. She has a box of it, she's got a pound of it, which is approximately, was well, a little less than half a kilo in weight. We're told it's extremely expensive. Judas, who obviously has a financial mind, quickly calculates the sum of it and he says that it's worth 300 denarii. A denarii, you'll remember from last week, or a denarius, um, is a a labourer's wage for a day. So 300 denarii is 300 days' wages. So that is expensive perfume. And that's what she takes with her, the most expensive thing in her house, and she knows, like I said, what she's going to do with it, and why she's going to do it. So as the, as the Lord is sitting at the table, and I, I believe that he is preaching on a certain theme, which we'll look at God willing next Sabbath evening, because I need to break this into two of you. But as he's preaching on a certain theme, she comes up and she breaks the seal. Now, there was a special seal on these boxes to, to show their authenticity. I mean, if you're buying something very, very expensive, you want to know it's real. And normally, in situations like that, there's a special seal that authenticates the product. And this kind of seal needed to be broken, and that's why we're told that she broke the box. And what she does well, what she does, you'll notice, is different from what the other one the other woman just poured the ointment on the feet of the Lord, and uh, she began to wipe his feet with her hair. Mary, we're told, poured the ointment on the Lord's head. Matthew and Mark both tell us that she poured the ointment on his head. Now, obviously, they say so very deliberately, and it's equally obvious that, When John says that she specially applied it to his feet, equally obviously there's a significance there. The Bible tells us that she anointed his head and his feet. Surely, symbolically, we can say that therefore she is effectively anointing his whole body. She wants his whole body anointed, and significantly that's how the Lord himself he recognises what's in her heart (coughs) so see God willing next week he knows exactly what she's doing and he knows why she's doing it so he tells us that she is anointing his body that's the expression that he uses in Matthew 26 and 12 he says that in pouring this fragrant oil upon my body she did it for my burial So the whole body is effectively anointed and it has something to do with the Lord's own burial. So there's more to this anointing than there was to the other one. There's a lot in the other one. The other one was an expression, as we saw some weeks back, it's an expression of great love and devotion. Sacrificial love, as all love is really. And sacrificial devotion, as I suppose you can say all devotion is. But there's something deeper and something more spiritually significant here. Now, I don't know if you remember, but when we did look at the other woman's anointing, we made a point of seeing how the Lord saw it and how other people saw it. You'll remember how Simon the Pharisee saw it. He saw that the woman was a notorious sinner, and uh, he was very unhappy with Christ for accepting that anointing without rebuking the woman. Uh, Christ, of course, saw what the woman did very, very differently. He understood her, and he justified her for what she did, and said effectively that her great outpouring of love was a mark of her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, She loved much because she was forgiven much. Because she was forgiven so much, she loved the Lord so much and wanted to show that by giving the best that she had and lavishing it upon her saviour. Now, let's follow a similar pattern here in connection with this anointing because the fact is that in this house not everyone sees it in the same way. We would expect them to, in a sacred home like this, full of the Lord's people, a home that's full of love and worship and service, we would expect everybody to see it in the same way, but they don't. Let's see it through the eyes of the disciples uh, tonight. And God willing, next Lord's Day, if we're spared and able, we'll see it through the eyes of the Saviour himself. And as we see it, of course, through the eyes of the Saviour, we'll see the heart of Mary which is where we really want to go. But first of all, the disciples. Matthew and Mark both tell us that when they saw what Mary did, they were, as Matthew says, indignant. The Greek word really means just to to be in a rage or incensed. They are really, really angry. Mark tells us that they all began to criticise her sharply, which is again in the Greek language a very strong expression. It carries the idea of anger and just tearing someone apart, more or less, scolding her, and scolding her for the waste that was involved in pouring out thousands of pounds worth that could, of course, as the passage says have been given to another cause. Now, on the face of it, that's a surprising thing. It's a surprising thing in itself. It's all the more surprising because they had already seen a woman demonstrate her love for the Lord in a similar way. The Lord accepted that gracious act and I'm sure they must have understood it then as a gracious act. They must have appreciated it. And so why these months later is there such a different reaction to what the Lord, uh, what Mary does? It's amazing in a way that the Lord's people can sometimes take such a, a dim view of what others of the Lord's people can do. But it does happen. It does happen. Here you've got an act that's full of love, sacrifice, insight, full of spiritual insight on Mary's part and devotion and yet all she gets is an indignant response from her brothers and her sisters in the Lord. Uh, by the way, the fact that that happened it should be an encouragement to yourself if it does happen to you, you can sometimes find yourself misunderstood. misunderstood by well, those who, who maybe even are closest to you. Uh, there are examples of that littered throughout the scriptures. you find that David was often misunderstood. Uh, Job was misunderstood. I remember saying to you not that long ago that he was the godliest man in the world. The Bible tells us that. In his own generation, he was the godliest man in the world. But the next godliest people concluded that he was a hypocrite because of the events that happened to him. Now you've got to process that. It's not just the fact that a godly person is suffering, and that's difficult to understand, but it's also a fact that the godliest person in the world was esteemed to be a non-godly person by those who are next to him in godliness. So next time you feel that you are being misunderstood, well, let the Lord be your judge. The Lord knows your heart. The Lord knows what you do and the Lord knows why you do it and sometimes that's enough. He'll eventually bring things round in his own good time and in his own good way but sometimes uh, you're just simply misunderstood, sometimes ignored, sometimes forgotten by those from whom you expected a lot more. But, But where did all this come from? Why the anger? Can we ask who poisoned the woman? That would be a good question to ask. It's actually a very appropriate question to ask. Who poisoned the woman? The fact is that somebody did poison the woman. The immediate source of that poison was, of course, Judas Iscariot. Uh, Like his true master, I mean, he he would call Jesus master, I'm sure, but his true master, of course, sad to say, is the wicked one. But like, like his true master, he is the accuser of the brethren, and the accuser of the sisters, of course, too. He divides the brethren, which the devil likes to do. Uh, one of the devil's names is Diabolos, which is a Greek word. A Greek word that's made up of two other words. One which means to throw, boulos, the other means dia, or through or in the middle. The idea is that the devil takes something and he just lobs it into the middle and he causes a separation. Have you seen the devil do that? I've seen him do that often enough. He just lobs a thing in the middle and people explode in different directions. He's the accuser of the brethren. Perhaps it's just an accusation that he lobs into the middle or, or a rumor, or a lie, usually a half-truth. And before you know it, those who have previously loved each other, are eating each other up and consuming each other. And most of the time they don't even recognise who's doing it. He's the one who introduces this thought in the first place. I would, I don't bet, if I did I would bet that nobody, nobody thought poorly of what Mary did until Judas opened his mouth. Nobody. And he comes forward, of course, with something that's extremely plausible. He says, well, if we've got that kind of wealth, he says, if, if that wealth is to hand, he says, well, why on earth don't we use it properly? Why lavish it out in an extravagant and unnecessary act, when by my calculation, he says, it could be sold for 300 denarii? How many poor people... Could we feed on 300 denarii instead of just pouring it out like this? Is that so plausible to you? Well, if you're honest, it possibly does, at least to some extent. Like I said, the devil always knows exactly what to say and how to say it. The devil doesn't care for the poor. and John tells us that Judas Iscariot didn't actually care for the poor either. He didn't. But that takes us to this fact that although the immediate source of the the trouble in the house was Judas Iscariot, he's not the ultimate source. He's not the real source. That, of course, is the devil himself. It's the devil himself. Satan is in the womb. Now, I'm not speculating when I'm saying that. The Bible actually tells us, in a roundabout way, that he is there. The Bible tells us that Satan entered the heart of Judas Iscariot. I'm sure you know that expression, that Satan entered into Judas. That's an awful phrase. Um, It's not something that's rare, sad to say, It's something that we ought to contemplate and to take seriously when Satan begins to enter somebody's heart and really grip them. Maybe we're not so aware of the fact that the Bible tells us that Satan entered Judah's heart twice on two distinct occasions. First of all, well, actually, second of all, in time, just a few days after this, a few short days during the Passover when they sat at the Lord's table, you'll remember that the Lord was troubled in his soul. And he said, Truly one of you shall betray me. And of course, all round the table, in a horseshoe form as they were seated, they began to look at each other and to question and to say, Well, is it I? Who who would do such a thing? And uh, the Lord announces that it is the hand of one of those who sat at the table with him. And uh, when everybody else has asked, "Is it I?" of course Judas at last says it?" Now Judas was beside Christ. Uh, John was on one side of him, Judas on the other. I would imagine it was a quiet thing, and uh, that uh, nobody heard what uh, transpired between them. but Jesus said to him, "What you have to do, uh, what you are doing," he says, "Do it quickly." We're told that Satan entered into him. And that he went out into the night. Satan enter, entered into him at the Lord's table. At the Lord's table. But that wasn't the only occasion on which Satan entered into When he went out that night, that was to arrange with the authorities where they would find Christ later that evening. He was going to tell them to come with him to the garden of Gethsemane. He had already arranged the price and the betrayal itself. 30 pieces of silver. When did he arrange that with them? Just after Mary poured the expensive oil on the Lord Jesus. He left the house. And Matthew tells us that as soon as Jesus said, wherever the gospel is preached in the world, what this woman has done will be told as a memorial to her. Then Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and he said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver them to you? And they counted out to him thirty pieces of silver. Isn't it, isn't it sad and sickening? Isn't it nauseating that he accepted thirty pieces of silver? The recognized price of a slave Isn't it amazing that this greedy, covetous man sold innocent blood, the blood of the Son of God, for 30 pieces of silver. And from that time, he looked for an opportunity to betray him. Now, when I said that Satan entered him, Luke actually tells us that on this occasion that is exactly what happened. And it's only Luke that says it. He says that when the feast drew nigh, Satan entered Judas and he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him. They were glad and agreed to give him money. So he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. And that opportunity came at the Lord's Supper shortly afterwards. Satan entered once and Satan entered twice. And that tells us, friends, that this sacred room in which the Lord was preaching, a room that was so full of love, can we say a room in which brethren were dwelling together in unity, was also a room where the devil was present. And there wasn't just a smell, a fragrant smell of love and devotion and sacrifice. There was also spiritually a horrible smell. Of unbelief and of hatred issuing from the heart of Judas, which was in the grip of Satan. Now, Satan can only grip a heart that's veering in his direction, anyway. Satan will never really get a hold in this kind of way of any of you unless you are yielding yourself over to it. I mean, don't get me wrong, from one perspective, we're held by him anyway. The Lord makes perfectly plain that we are on his side in the spiritual warfare. If there is a divide between light and darkness, which there is, if the kingdom of heaven is at war with the powers of darkness, which it most certainly is, then if you are not with Christ, then you are against Christ. If your life is not gradually being conformed to the image of God's Son and our Saviour, then your life is most certainly being gradually conformed to the image of the original liar, and the original murderer. And we are travelling, all of us tonight travelling to hell or to heaven. All of us. That is a sobering, sobering and solemn thought. And there are times on that journey, if you're on the wrong path, where the devil enters you and more or less confirms his grip on you. It's a point where something happens or a a choice is made or a step is taken and from that point onwards it becomes ever more difficult to extricate yourself from the devil's grasp. Mm -mm -mm. We've seen such things happen. We've seen them in the lives of people. Fatal wrong turnings. And of course, as long as we're on mercy's ground, we're on mercy's ground, but sometimes people just shut the door on themselves. And they never seem to get any further than that. And we can't deny the fact that although this incident is always remembered by us for the best of reasons, this woman's act of love and devotion and spiritual insight and intelligence is remembered and preached on and will be everywhere where the Gospel is preached until the end of time. It is also notable for the fact that the house was filled with an evil spirit that a decision was arrived at by a man which put himself in the grip of Satan and ended a few days later by taking his own life and going, as the Bible tells us, to a lost eternity. That too is present on this occasion. And it seems unwise to consider one without considering the other. And of course, um, it's so interesting to note how the devil comes in and how he comes in so quickly and separates brethren so quickly. You know, a a lot of um, separations between brethren come sometimes when you least expect it. It can sometimes happen in a church service or even after a church service. It can sometimes happen in a court of the church. Sometimes hot on the heels of a revival, um, a problem can arise that can rip apart people who are together because people lose vigilance. When people are happy and they're aware that the Lord is around, they lose vigilance. That's why you sometimes find the saints of God falling when you least expect them to. Noah is faithful until the flood is over and then he's caught in drunkenness. David is strong and consistent until he's in his mid-fifties and then there's a problem. Lack of vigilance. Lack of vigilance. And the devil, well, one thing he is is his vigilance we can't ascribe any virtue to the devil but at the same time boy he's vigilant he's on the watch he knows what to say and how to get people now as Judas looks at this well what's his motive well the Bible tells I mean John tells us that he was covetous and greedy the, the real treasure in Judas life wasn't Christ Christ was never his pearl of great price. Christ was something and somebody quite special to him, all right, but only in a certain kind of way. There are still people like that. You'll always find uh, people who are interested in Jesus because even at the human level, he's a very interesting person. There's no denying that. Even as a historical figure, he's an interesting person. As a teacher, he's an interesting person. And there were many people who recognized that In what the Lord has to say, there is so much to be gleaned and so much to be learned. But that's always to damn him with faint praise. The acceptance that the Lord desires is the acceptance of him as Lord and King, as God incarnate. That's what he expects from ourselves. But Christ never rose any higher than that in Judas' estimation. That's why he never entered the kingdom of heaven. What really mattered to Judas at the end of the day was um, worldly fame, ambition, uh, popularity, money, and of course the power that comes with money. That's usually why people like money, because of the power that flows from it. And of course it got such a grip of him that he, he was quite happy to steal from the house of God, to steal from the treasure. We're told that he took from the box. Now, When the Lord called people into full-time service, when they became disciples and apostles, I mean, the, the word disciple means two things. It's a reference to all those who followed the Lord but continued living their lives in their own callings. It also referred to those who were called to learn from him and to preach the gospel. They had to leave their nets and they were dependent on the kindness of the Lord's people for their living. So they had a bag. And people would give them money um, to keep them. Sometimes they gave of that money themselves to the poor and the needy. And uh, it doesn't matter even if we receive, we should give. Even if you're very poor and you're given something, you should still be willing to give, like the widow who gave her two mites. Uh, So they were used to Judas being in charge of the money bag and they didn't know that he was just siphoning off it for himself. We're told later that he had purchased a land for himself. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And as the Bible tells us, we've got to make sure that we don't set our hearts on it. And as I mentioned when I was preaching on the rich fool, it's really hard to tell when you're in the grip of this. Uh, Like so many things in life, the thing itself blinds you to the thing itself. It's hard to tell in your characters. You need honesty. In fact, you need more than honesty. You need honesty coupled with the Spirit of God showing yourself that you're in the grip of the world, that you're in the grip of possessions, that these things matter more to you than the Lord. Who would rob God? We wouldn't like to think that we would ever reach a situation where we were entrusted with money, that was dedicated to God and we would take it. I heard of a man who started doing that quite innocently. If I can use the word innocently, I'm using it relatively. Uh, Somebody who started to take money with the full intention of paying it back. And I think he did the first time. second time, he was a bit slow in paying it back. Before a certain amount of time had passed, he had taken thousands upon thousands of pounds from the Lord's house. Because little by little, Satan persuaded him that it was okay. Maybe he always thought he would pay it back. But Satan is clever, and Satan is subtle. And our own hearts are clever, and our own hearts are subtle. And as for robbing God, well, there's more than one way to do that. What if we're not even giving him in the first place what is rightfully his? What if we put in the plate... What if what we put in the plate isn't at all comfortable to what we might give to somebody or something else? What if it isn't our first fruits but our last dregs? Have we ever thought of that as robbing God? Of course Malachi the prophet said to the people of God, you are robbing God. The people said to Malachi, how are we robbing God? And Malachi said, in your tithes and in your offerings. He said bring the tithes and offerings to my house and I will open the windows of heaven and I will bless you um, that's one thing I can say that uh, this congregation is good in. there is an abundance of tithes and offerings of course I don't know what's true of every individual but there are certainly some who give very generously to the house of God but let's see to it that we remember the Lord and that we don't rob him. I mean, it's easy to see how Judas was robbing him. And sure, the kind of robbery is certainly worse than the kind you or I might be guilty of. But nonetheless, second-degree murder is still murder, even if it's not in the first degree. And we've got to watch that we are not robbing the Lord. But what was it about this event that tipped Judas over the edge? Was it just a waste of money? Well, for Judas, this was the event that made plain to him that this wasn't what he signed up for. When he started following the Lord, when he was happy to be elected an apostle, he had a certain view of what Christianity was about. And it was full of things like glory and power and honour. He wanted an earthly kingdom, absolutely. He wanted Jesus to be the king because he was As far as he could see, he was worthy of it. I mean, what a man he was, and what a teacher he was. He wanted to see freedom, worldwide kingdom, and himself, of course, having a place of honour in it, along with all the rest. I suppose it's true to this day that people can identify themselves with Christianity for different reasons. That can depend on how popular Christianity is. Sometimes you find, you know, that when it becomes uh, kind of trendy or popular, that people attach themselves to it. I remember hearing a, f- a good few years ago of, um, I think Iran was the country. Uh, maybe I should ask Adam about this, but I've got a feeling Iran was the country where, when someone came forward to profess faith, they didn't really need to be questioned much because. It was certain death if you were discovered. It was like that. In other words, um, no worldly inducements would really bring you into the church in those days and in that place. Uh, Sometimes it can be different. Like If if you wanted any kind of decent academic job, for example, in England, you had to be a member of the Church of England. Uh, If you wanted to be a teacher in Scotland, you certainly had to be a member of the Church of Scotland. Uh, so these things can be inducements for people, you see, to attach themselves to Christianity and to Christ. Well, that's what's motivating Judas. When he sees this waste of money, it's, it's, it's just a, a kiss of death for him. He says, obviously nobody's interested in what I'm interested in. And I'm going to get out of this what I can. And he goes straight to the authorities and gets his 30 pieces of silver. A fateful decision to let the Lord go. And you'll notice that the Lord lets him go too. You know, the Lord bore with them for three years. And there's a lesson in that in itself. The Lord bore with him for three years. Very early on, we're told, Jesus said to them, Have I not chosen you twelve and one of you is a devil? What effect did that have on them? What effect did that have on all of them? What effect did it have on each one of them? What effect did it have on Judas? In any case, he stays always thinking and dreaming that his kingdom and his time will come. The Lord bears with him. But you know, when the time comes, the Lord can let go too. That's not something we like dwelling on or thinking about, but it's sometimes true that God says, away then and go. It goes back to what I said a minute ago. Just a few days later, Jesus at the Lord's table said to Judas, what you do, he says, do quickly. I find that really solemn. these words. He doesn't say, Judas, will you not think about it once more? He says, what you do, do quickly. Your heart is set in it. I know your heart is set in it. And at the end of the day, I leave people to do what they want to do if it's your choice to go to hell go to hell you go there by your choice and by your decision the devil working in Judas and lo and behold it works in the rest of the church now you would have thought that the power of Mary's act would prevail in that womb. no it was the power of Judas words that prevailed in that room. is there not a lesson there Who'd have thought it on this sacred night, with these sacred acts of devotion? Who'd have thought that the words of Judah's lips would prevail over the grace of Mary's action? But so it did. It was plausible, after all. Which of the disciples wasn't concerned for the poor? Several of them were relatively poor themselves. And we can all understand that. As Jesus said, the poor are always with you and they're always with us, and they are always in need. And who is going to argue against giving something to the poor? You know, there's many a cold hearted church committee room where this kind of discussion would be had. Oh come on, let's not use let's not use the money to build a house for the Lord, yet let's, let's use it for something else, because there are other needs. And they're always plausible these things. They're always, always plausible. We need to be careful. The poor are a worthy cause, but there will never be a worthier cause than the glory and majesty of our Lord Jesus Christ. There will always be opportunities to help the poor, but sometimes, sometimes something needs to be done for the honor of God that just needs to be done. And God recognizes that. And God receives it as done for Himself. Don't play off the needs of the poor against the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't play off one against the other. Let's recognise that there's a time for both. There is a time for expressing love and devotion like this. There is a time for lavishing our resources, maybe on the fabric of the house of God. There is a time to give to the poor. Sometimes that's always because they are always with us. But there's a time. Knowing the time and knowing the seasons. If we're too much like this, we can get sucked into a kind of attitude where the things of God directly don't matter. You remember when Haggai was sent to God's people, uh, they had started with enthusiasm building the temple. For for a long time they were building the temple. And then they suddenly began to stop. And they started to build and to beautify their own houses while the temple started to decay. And Haggai the prophet was sent to them saying, how come you got these fancy sealed and panelled houses, he says, when the, word of God, when the house of God is lying in ruins. And that was a matter of subtly changing priorities. And these things are always subtle because we all need nice houses. I mean, it's fine, to, it's fine to make your house nice and attractive. But at what point does it happen? God knows. Let our own hearts know too. At what point does it happen when the priorities shift And the things of God, or the house of God, just doesn't matter so much as even our own houses. God knows. So maybe this act was poor in some people's eyes, but it wasn't poor in the Lord's, as we'll see next time. It was plausible, this. I suppose it was quite persuasive too. I mean, these disciples knew that Judas was used to giving money and giving it to the poor out of their common bad. They didn't know, of course, they were siphoning it off. But they, they thought, well, this is a reasonable argument. Sometimes when people speak for a, out of a concern for the poor, you discover gradually that they're not that concerned for the poor at all. I've noticed this quite often. Uh, they speak for them, but they seem to do well out of them. Just like people who campaign for the people and for democracy, give them a sip of power and they become the tyrants. Oh, it's all the people. Democracy, democracy. Okay, you have the power. Right, I'll take it. All pigs are equal, but some more equal than others. Well, the same is true. The same is true about concern for the poor. Very often the people you hear being really concerned for them, they seem to be quite well off themselves. They want to tax others, but they don't just give away their own money. Let's not be like that. Let's be sincere, honest, genuine, earnest in our love for the poor. But it was all too persuasive, and they were indignant. Did anyone in the room speak for Mary? Do you wonder that? Did anybody in the room say, hold on a minute, what this woman has done is wonderful? It is beautiful. It's perceptive. It's spiritual. It's to be admired. No, we're told that they were all of the same mind. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Nobody recognized the devil's paw prints. Nobody. For Judas, it was the end of the road. You know, I quoted a psalm there. We sang a psalm. I said it's a psalm that we don't often sing. In fact, I don't know. If you've ever heard a psalm, it's quite possible, simply because of the awfulness of, of what's in it. It's a series of imprecations or curses upon a certain man and upon family members too. Now, by the way, when God does such things, they're not arbitrary. If, if, if the family is, is judged, it's because the family are sharing the guilt of the pair. The Lord knows these things in a way that we don't. But Psalm 109 says things like, Set the wicked over this man at his right hand. Give Satan leave to stand by him. Let his days be few, so he's going to be cut off. And his charge, let another take his office. So this one's going to be an office. His children, let them be fatherless. His wife let her become a widow. And as for his family, let them beg. Seek bread for their supply. Let covetous extortioners take his wealth. Let there be no one to pity him. And his posterity cut off from the earth. Who? Well, actually, I should have read too. In verse 16 of that psalm, it says this. Why is this man suffering these things? Because he did not care, but persecuted the poor and the needy. And you think to yourself, well, who did Judas persecute? Well, <clears throat> a covetous man like that is quite able of being an extortioner in connection with other people. But who is the poor and the needy? Well, the psalm goes on to say, I am poor and indigent, Afflicted sore am I. My heart within me also is wounded exceedingly. It's the Saviour who's speaking. He has the power to pronounce these implications. He knows the heart of Judas. He knows the character of Judas' sons, maybe even of his mother or father. He knows the heart and just as he can bless, so he can curse. He is the one who pronounces life and he's the one who pronounces death. Judas didn't care for Christ's poverty and Christ's need. Neither did he care for anyone's poverty and his need. And so in this room, let me close by saying that we we can't really help but see a a vivid contrast. Uh, There's a contrast at so many levels, but let me just leave it at this one. Just the contrast between the way Mary sees the Lord and the way Judas sees him. Mary sees a man there who is altogether lovely, a pearl of great price, worth lavishing thousands upon thousands of pounds on. For Judas, there's someone there who's worth 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. And he leaves a house that's full of worship and adoration and goes into the darkness of a temple, an abandoned temple, to make a grubby deal with the church officials to sell and betray his Lord. The real question is for you um, what is Christ worth to you? What really is he worth? What are you willing to give for him, to do for him? Are you willing to be his servant, his friend, his follower, his disciples? Or is he just worth nothing to you really? At best can you say, well, he was a good man. He was a good man. Is that it? Is that it? But in spite of this smell of unbelief, there is a better smell in the house. One that lingered long after the unbelief went out. One that still lingers today. And that takes us next week where we really want to get to what is Mary doing why is she doing it what does she see what does she expect why does she show it in exactly this way let us pray (coughs) O Lord of God we pray to avoid the path in which destroyers go And uh, we cannot help but remember that as the Gospel makes its way through the world, it cuts and divides, always separating the wicked from the righteous. And it is our attitude to Christ that will determine which side we fall on ourselves. And when the Gospel calls us to consider what do we think of Christ, Help us to ask ourselves that question even tonight. What is he worth in our lives? What is he worth to our own souls? May we come to that place that Mary came to, where he was chief among ten thousand, fairer than any amongst the sons of men, a pearl of great price, for which it is well worth selling anything, in order to possess in his precious name amen <coughs> let's close singing in psalm 49 and at verse 16 psalm 49 at verse 16 <coughs> Very sad to think that Judas' life revolved around wealth, and like everyone else, he lost it all at the end of the day. Be not thou then afraid when one enriched thou dost see, nor when the glory of his house advanced is on high. Whatever ambition Judas has for his house, Jesus tells us in Psalm 109 that his house was cut off. He shall carry nothing hence when death his days doth end nor shall his glory after him into the grave descend. Although he his own soul did bless, whilst he on earth did live, and when to thyself thou dost dwell, men will thee praises give, he to his father's race shall go, they never shall see light. And I'm afraid that is still true of Judas. He still doesn't see any light. Man, honour, wanting knowledge, is like beasts that perish quite. These four stones are standing to sing. Holy Spirit.